Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. I'm Dr. Risha Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Asim Desai, my last name namesake. Dr. Desai is a cardiac electrophysiologist, a physician specialized in heart rhythm disorders and irregular heartbeat treatments. He's been caring for people with atrial fibrillation or AFib for over 17 years and currently practices in Orange County, California. He has a new book called Restart Your Heart, the playbook for thriving with AFib. It gives a compelling kind of expert-led bit of advice on how to live fearlessly with atrial fibrillation. Thanks so much for being with us today, Dr. Seem Desai. Thank you, Rishi. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I'd love to just kind of start out by maybe you just sharing a little bit of, about your background, kind of what got you interested in the medical field. Absolutely. So I grew up in Chicago and my dad was an oncologist. So from an early age, you know, I saw him taking call, going to the hospital, going to the office and had that exposure. And then when I was actually pretty young, he had a heart attack when he was 37. And so it was interesting because I saw this evolution of a physician also becoming a patient. And that became an interest of mine along the way, the physician-patient relationship being on both sides of the equation. And then through junior high and high school, probably like many people in the medical field, I had an interest in science. And then along the way, I really became interested in just general technology. At the time, it was more about computer technology. And we use quite a bit of that in our field in electrophysiology today. And in college, so I did a seven-year med program at Northwestern, where you get admitted to college and med school at the same time as a high school senior. And uh, the whole point of it was to encourage physicians to explore liberal arts majors. So I majored in philosophy. I tried to pick the absolute hardest thing you could possibly do from your right brain and your left brain. And so that then took me into residency. I did internal medicine and chief residency at Stanford, and then just stayed on for my cardiology training. And then kind of taking into the later years, I took a faculty job at University of Chicago in EP. And then since about 2005, I've been out in Southern California in private practice. Your father, you said, had a heart attack at the age of 37. Did I hear that age right? Yeah, he was 37. You know, Asian Indians and many people with Asian background have smaller coronary arteries, as you know, and there's a lot of syndrome X and, and sorts of things. And so um, I don't even really know. I was three. So I woke up in the neighbor's house uh, in the middle of the night. They had taken me over there because my mom had gone to the hospital with my dad. So not a lot of recollection of exactly what happened. And then when I was in the middle of medical school, he unfortunately had sudden death when he was traveling in India. And so I don't know about you, Rishi, but you reflect on your life story and you sort of see how all these things intersect in such an amazing way. I mean, you can look at it as all these traumas, which they are, but you can also look at it as these educational tools that allow me to connect with other people. Yeah, I mean, I am getting chills just kind of hearing your story and, and the sudden death. I'm so sorry to hear about that. It sounds like Thank you. you were obviously close to your father being raised by him and, and at the age of three having this memory. I'm curious, did this spur you into pursuing cardiology as a career? I imagine it must have played a role on some level. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So when my dad passed away, I was literally in the middle of studying for my clinical pharmacology exam. So it was around second year med school. And so I hadn't really thought about what I was going to do, you know, surgery, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I knew I wanted to do something procedural. And so I was looking into sort of the internal medicine procedural fields or, 
or urology or ENT, pulmonology. At one point I was interested in oncology because my dad was an oncologist. And then honestly, I think many people, many of your listeners can identify, you know, mentors that come along the way that take an interest in you have a huge impact. And when I was a medical intern, I was reading EKGs one day as part of the rotation and the EKG booth was located right near the electrophysiology office. So I had one of the electrophysiology attendings, uh, just a really nice guy taking interest in me. And the next thing I know, I'm writing a paper on IV amiodarone. And that's as a medical intern. And I had no idea what I was doing in terms of writing the research paper. But to this day, 1997, Annals of Internal Medicine. I'm proud of that. That really just, I think, started to resonate. The amiodarone, and I think just even the drugs, you know, in EP, and, and we can talk about some of the other technologies and stuff, but it's just a fascinating part of the heart, the electrical system in, in so many ways. It's just so many nuances. And then I think, you know, the other component when you asked Rishi about the interest in cardiology was as a resident, as an internal medicine resident, doing the CCU rotation. So at that point, you know, we were very much involved in the rounds. You know, we had our attending physician, this guy named Michael Fowler. He was one of the big pioneers of using carvedilol for heart failure. And he was just very entertaining. I mean, he had an awesome British accent and he just was very engaging. And just seeing the fellows and the attendings, literally, I mean, open up arteries, saving lives, you know, running codes, saving people, you know, balloon pumps. And then I think probably the biggest thing was the, the vasopressors and the hemodynamics. I mean, having a, a Swangans catheter and, and being able to turn up dobutamine, turn down dopamine and, and just seeing the immediate impact. You know, you can tell I'm an intellectual nerd when it comes to, to medicine, but I, I think I just found all of those different aspects you know, very fascinating. And it, it almost gave me a sense of control, control over, you know, my health, control over being able to help people. Yeah, I've always been uh, attracted to the heart for the same reasons. It's it's this beautiful organ that as you get to know it and kind of understand how to shape it and change it, you can see how it responds. And just thinking back to, you know, what, what happened with your father then, a big part of, you know, you mentioned the small corners, the small blood vessels, there's also diet is a big issue, especially in the South Asian community. And, and that's another way to obviously shape and affect your heart. I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. And did it affect your own diet in any way? Or have you as a cardiologist kind of taken on changes in your diet because you know how it affects your heart? Yeah, absolutely. So for my dad, what I saw growing up was post heart attack. So he wouldn't eat the cheese on pizza. He would take it off at the restaurant. He was absolutely terrified of having another heart attack. And, and it really robbed him in many ways of really enjoying life. And it, it really shows you the power of certain diagnoses and what that does to someone's psyche, especially someone that's in medicine, where in some ways you feel invincible and nothing's going to happen to you. And lo and behold. And so, you know, I have to admit, when I was in high school, I ate terrible food, you know, tons of fast food and all that kind of stuff. I don't think it influenced me that much. But then, as I started doing my medical training. And, and honestly, it probably really wasn't until my residency and after that I started really focusing on diet. And uh, you know, it's part of my, what I call a resilience toolbox in terms of just self-care. And my wife, most recently, we are doing a kind of a more plant-based approach. And I had a chance to connect with Mark Hyman and a couple of other physicians that are in the realm of nutrition. And I strongly believe food is medicine. And you know, there's a ton of data about how food impacts so many conditions related to inflammation. And now we know that cardiovascular disease is inflammatory, just like many other diseases. And uh, the gut heart connection and brain heart connection, I mean, it's just everything's connected. 
Yeah, my three-year-old son, we have so many connections. My three-year-old son tells my father to eat healthy to protect his heart. He's, he's got that specific yep. kind of line of reasoning. And it works. When my son says it, he listens. My dad doesn't listen to me or anyone else. But this right. is kind of a good segue maybe for your book. It's entitled Restart Your Heart, The Playbook for Thriving mm-hmm. with AFib. Do you mind just kind of sharing briefly what atrial fibrillation is and then maybe more about what inspired you to write the book? Absolutely. So AFib or atrial fibrillation is the, it's the most common heart rhythm disorder worldwide. So many people have probably heard of it, either know someone who has it, taking care of a patient with it. And it's the, one of the primary causes of stroke. In fact, when you look at people who come into the hospital with a stroke, about 30 to 40% are cryptogenic or unknown cause. And a very high percentage of those patients have silent atrial fibrillation. So AFib is the great masquerader, the electrical cancer, the subtle process that every time you have an episode, it changes the electrical cellular architecture and creates more AFib. So AFib begets AFib. So it's a progressive disease. It impacts probably three main areas, stroke, congestive heart failure, because by causing very rapid irregular rhythms, which is what AFib is, it leads to weakening of the heart muscle. And then the third and probably biggest piece is the quality of life piece. And I think what's really interesting about AFib compared to other areas of heart disease, Rishi, is that, you know, when you think about the engine, you know, and you think about a heart as an engine, we use a lot of analogies. You know, when the plumbing and the coronary arteries are affected, usually the symptoms are not too subtle. I mean, of course, diabetics and women and other groups have more atypical symptoms, but still exertional angina and a variety of other presenting factors tell you that there may be something going on with the coronaries and the valves, and we have simple tests to quickly screen. But electrical issues of the heart, they come and go. It's like taking your car to the mechanic. You know, the EKG in the office is a 10-second strip. So, you know, I have so many patients tell me, but my EKG was normal. My doctor checked me six months ago. And that's the thing about AFib. We're learning that AFib often occurs in the middle of the night, and that's likely due to the vagus nerve. But as a result, people may not have any symptoms. And, And often the most common symptom is just profound fatigue. And at that point, usually AFib is already progressed. So we call it the electrical epidemic, really. That might be a good branch point to then ask you to teach us. For example, there are folks that are out there probably feeling fatigue from lack of sleep, uh, feeling fatigue maybe because their diet is such that they're having highs and lows of blood sugar, probably lots of reasons for that fatigue. What are some things that you could teach us about how to identify or diagnose atrial fibrillation as distinguished from the other many causes of fatigue? Absolutely. You know, if you think of music and you think of a metronome, that's really how your pulse should be. There are slight variations called heart rate variability, but generally speaking, it's, it's a fairly steady beat. And atrial fibrillation is chaos. It's cardiac chaos. So teaching people to learn to take their pulse, either their radial artery in their wrist or their carotid artery, that's a very simple tool. And teaching people how to do that and really making it a part of a daily routine is checking your pulse. The first question people should ask is, are they at risk? And one in four of us over age 40 will get AFib at some point in our lives. Why? Because it's also electrical arthritis. It's arthritis of the electrical system. Age is the number one risk factor still. And as people get older, you know, when you ask the question about teaching and the aspect of AFib, It's really like when you start getting into that 50 and 60 and 65 age group, you want to be really aware of your heartbeat. And fortunately, there's so many wearable devices now. You know, Apple is doing the big heart study with Stanford. It has the EKG function. They have some other technologies built into it to look for silent AFib. But I think that getting back to taking the pulse, and when you think about, you know, the symptoms that I talked about, the profound fatigue, 
arrhythmias are episodic when they first start. You know, AFib is progressive, so it starts off as paroxysmal. You go in and out. So you'll have times, maybe for a few hours, where you just feel terrible, and then you'll feel okay. And that's what arrhythmias are. But then when they go to persistent, continuous AFib, that's where you get this sort of daily fatigue. And so, you know, it's hard, right? Because if you're talking to someone and, and they say they're tired, there could be a million things that are doing that. And you're absolutely right. Sleep is probably the number one thing that's contributing to that. You know, I heard one of your podcasts recently by Ariana Huffington. And Ariana and I actually had a chance to connect. And so I've become a writer for Thrive Global, which is just an amazing organization. And I was able to talk about some of these issues you and I are talking about uh, with regards to AFib. But taking the pulse and then I think having some kind of wearable device is just a great idea, whether it's a Fitbit, something simple, something inexpensive, or whether it's a Apple Watch, but any of those kinds of things. And then there's Cardio Mobile that you can get on Amazon for $90. And it was started by a company called the LiveCore. And Eric Topol, who is a, a chief of cardiology at Cleveland Clinic, and Eric Topol actually he diagnosed someone on an airplane with a with a STEMI with a heart attack using that device. But that device will basically record your rhythm, your EKG rhythm, just putting your thumbs up. Asim, do you mind just elaborating on one myth you might have heard or come across around atrial fibrillation? That there are cases like persistent and permanent AFib where nothing can be done. It's simply not true. We have been able to get persistent patients into sinus rhythm. We use a variety of technologies, ablation, drug therapy, pacing devices, that the studies that people remember about ablation being unsafe is simply not true. You know, we're discharging people home the same day. It's early intervention. It's early detection, early intervention. So the, the myth is that people have to live in AFib. That is the myth. And that is why I wrote the book, to, to tell people. And in some cases they do, and but we can still do a lot. But it's less and less that people have to live in AFib. You know, one thing that strikes me about this is kind of being more aware of your body in general, especially Absolutely. as you get older. And you, you talk about electrical arthritis. I mean, that idea is so profound. And before we chatted on the podcast, you, you mentioned mindfulness. Maybe you could connect those threads and, and what got you more into mindfulness and being in tune with your body? Yeah, that's a great question, Rishi. You know, we all know about the autonomic nervous system, that it keeps the body alive and it interconnects all the organs. And we're learning more and more that the heart and the brain have a two-way street. You know, we used to think that you had the sinus node, you had the electrical system, you had cells that spontaneously fired, but the brain kind of drove it. Uh, now we know the heart has its secondary nervous system that takes in sort of afferent information and sends it up to the brain often first when you're exposed to a fight or flight response. You know, your blood pressure and heart rate go up first before your brain even has a chance to process it. And so this, this interplay between the brain and the heart is just fascinating. And I think we often see patients in AFib, they go to the emergency room, they're scared, and literally we're getting ready to cardiovert the patient, shock the patient back into rhythm, and they'll self-convert. They'll convert on their own. And it's, it's really something that many of us are thinking it's that sense of safety and calm that people get that helps to facilitate the conversion. When I do AFib ablation and I'm ablating around the pulmonary veins, I'll get a vagal response. I'll get a drop in the heart rate. We now know the vagus nerve is a big trigger for AFib, that athletes, for example, NFL players, six times higher risk of AFib. We see this interplay of the autonomic nervous system. So you asked, like, what got me interested? It was seeing how the autonomic nervous system manifested in heart disease, you know, bypass patients, high risk of depression, this, this brain-heart relationship. And then I went through burnout. I mean, personally, I went through all the classic signs and symptoms of burnout. 
And I needed to create a resilience toolbox is what I call it. And I wrote an article on that, that nutrition, social connections, physical exercise, and the mindfulness part, when I, when I was really uh, having a tough time, a good friend of mine, Sheila Patel, she uh, is a medical director at the Chopra Center down in Carlsbad, uh, where they do a lot of meditation retreats and things like that. She's a childhood friend. And you know, I was talking to her and, and she's a physician. And, and she said, you should really check out our one week meditation course. And that was a game changer for me. And so I used to walk into the EP lab with a very high level of that sort of understandable concern and nervousness. You're going to be doing a transeptal catheterization. There's a lot of bad things that could happen, even if you've been doing it a long time. And I used to be so kind of annoyed and distracted of all the people talking around you. And But man, Rishi, with mindfulness, I'm in this zone that the sports people talk about, that you can really get into this flow state. So for your listeners, you know, those of you who do it, continue to do it. And those of you who haven't checked it out, I mean, it only takes a few minutes a day. It's amazing how just a few minutes a day and all these great apps out there can make a big difference. So it, it was on a patient care level that I saw this interplay between the brain and the heart. And it's also on a personal level. And right now with the pandemic, there's all these people who are getting stressed out and they're having more AFib. I didn't know that specific last line that you're seeing more AFib because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. The pandemic in general, gosh, it's it's created so much transparency about where mm -hmm. our baseline is and how many fractures there are in the foundation of our healthcare system. Maybe you can just speak to that. Like, are there things that you're yeah. seeing as a frontline healthcare worker that this is revealed about our healthcare system that maybe otherwise have been hidden for some time? Absolutely. And, you know, that's why I think what Osmosis is doing with this sort of global education in a virtual fashion, I mean, it's so suited, you know, for this time. And I, I think what it's revealing is how dependent we were on person to person interaction, you know, being physically close. I mean, whether it's examining a patient or whether it's going to the heart rhythm meeting, which I was about ready to go to in San Diego and they canceled it, you know, and it's really impacted us in a big way in terms of learning and, and everything else. I think that you know, the, the big thing, obviously, that's discussed, which is critical, is the inequity in healthcare access. I mean, I think it's really revealed that. I think that in terms of our just our ability to get organized, mobilized on a national level, on a global level, it really revealed how interconnected we are in this country globally from a medical standpoint, and also revealed how disconnected we are and how the, we just need to figure out where the areas that are less connected need to be enhanced. And I think the only way to do that is with partnering with each other, with physicians and other healthcare workers and administrators and public health. And I think it really shined a light on public health in a big way. You know, all these other medical issues that are important, Parkinson's, cancer, heart disease, but now it's clear, you know, public health, infectious disease, it's here to stay. There's all sorts of viruses out there that are unfortunately probably even worse than Corona. And I think it's really revealed. It's a big eye opener. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Obviously, as an infectious disease doctor, I feel that way, but it's uh, satisfying to hear other professionals validate what, what I consider probably a biased opinion on my part. You know, I'd like to end with this question, which is, that, you know, we have a lot of students and early career health professionals in our audience, and you obviously have a very illustrious career. What advice would you give folks that are coming along right now that might hear your story and say, hey, this sounds like someone I'd want to emulate one day. I, I'm, I'm interested in doing some of this kind of work. How do I get there? I'm glad you asked. And by the way, I am very accessible to your listeners. I'm on social media and I can give you all that contact information. So I encourage people to message me. You know, I'm happy to help. 
I've been a teacher for a lot of my life as an attending physician. And I think number one, learn how to ask for help. Learn how to ask for help in the classroom, in the hospital, with your family, with your friends. It's critical that getting humble is a really hard thing to do. And for me, it took getting burnt out. Like I realized I hit so hard that it opened up my eyes to what I needed, that I needed all these self-care kinds of things. So for your listeners, number one would definitely be learn how to ask for help and lean on others and listen, mindfully listen. You know, number two is really developing that self-care, that resilience toolbox. You're going to be so much more effective in anything you do academically, patient care, when your prefrontal cortex is actually working and your amygdala isn't hijacking all the blood. And so I would definitely say point number two on that. And probably the third most important point is, you know, you're doing such a noble thing. I mean, this medicine is still one of the most noble professions there is, and it always will be. And I'll admit, I was going to quit medicine multiple times in my career, multiple times. And there was just something in me that just said, keep going. And my gosh, I would have felt terrible now. I mean, I just love what I do. And I have really hard days. And there are days that, you know, I think COVID really revealed as EPs, we're so dependent on doing procedures. I mean, all my AFib ablations disappeared for six weeks. All our patients suffered. And there's a whole discussion on that in terms of like uh, the heart issues in COVID. But I would just encourage people, when you do feel like giving up, that's where you need to reach out to your tribe, you know, figure out who's in your tribe. And there's going to be a lot of people that'll say, don't do this. Like people told me, don't be a doctor. My dad told me, don't be a doctor. That's a classic Indian dad thing to do. And of course, you know, like any son, I didn't listen. That's really awesome advice. And I think you treat the heart. You also speak from the heart. And I appreciate your honesty in this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you, Rishi. Stay safe. Awesome. You too. I'm Dr. Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.